The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, a show where I investigate how we're changing the nature of work and how that work is changing us. And this, this is our very first episode. I've been writing about technology for nearly two decades. I've been around long enough to remember when MySpace seemed like a bigger deal than Facebook. I once wrote a cover story for Fortune, and the title of the article was iPhone versus BlackBerry. Because back then, in 2009, we really didn't know the answer yet. But here's the thing. The tech wasn't the most interesting part to me. It never has been. What I've always cared about is its impact on people, on how we live, and on how we work. And man, has work changed. That's why I wanted to do this podcast, because somehow we all need to figure out how to change along with it. So each week, I'll bring you interviews with people who've figured out something important about how to make a career work. And we'll also be doing reporting on each week's topic. That's with Caroline Fairchild. She manages the reporting team here at LinkedIn. You'll hear from her more later in the episode. This week's guest is Seth Meyers. I've been watching him perform since he debuted on Saturday Night Live in 2001, and he just celebrated his fifth anniversary as the host of Late Night. I learned so much from talking to Seth. Things that apply to anyone who's ever tried to manage a business. Like, Seth knows a ton about management. He has great thoughts on helping his writers have ambitions of their own. You know, he told me that he always tries to help them realize those ambitions, and it pays off because then they give him their best work. He also talked about how he depends on that talent to help him source new writers. We also talked about starting something new and making up new rules for it from scratch. He said he tried a hundred things before he figured out what worked on late night. And he talked about how long it took for people to stop knowing him as that guy from SNL. Here's my conversation with Seth. So you've lived this very public life. I've seen your kids on Instagram. They're totally cute. Thank you. I love your parents whenever they come on the show. They will be very happy to hear that. Um, but I want to know what happens behind the scenes, the thing that we don't see. Okay. So what have you learned in those five years about how to keep talented people motivated and how to help them want to stick around? Well, particularly with our writing staff, we want them to stick around, but we also want them to find a path to the next thing they do. We don't. We come into this knowing, just like when I was a writer at SNL, I didn't think that's what I would be doing forever. So you want them to have a good time here, and you want them to stay for long enough that you get value out of them, but you also want them to learn the tools here that they can take on to the next thing. So we're not upset when people leave if it's to go to something that elevates their career. Well, and there's this sense in SNL and, and in Late Night, Seth, that um, it's like a big alumni network. And, yes. And we as your viewers, we all actually feel like we're kind of tacitly part of that alumni network. We cheer for you when you go off and do your next projects. And that alumni network stretches way back, like way before late night. Yes. Um, I want to talk about how you help it to stretch forward. Well, you know, sometimes one of the ways you help it stretch forward is you just give opportunities to people who didn't have one. And then you hope that they will pay it forward. Michelle Wolf is an example of someone we hired who was a stand-up comedian who had a background in finance, and we gave her her first job in television, which led to her next job in television, which was The Daily Show, which led to her own television show. And along the way, you know, she would reach back and say to us, hey, I need someone 
who will be good to run my show and we could suggest Christine Nangle, who's someone I met at SNL. So yeah, you're constantly, you know, creating this sort of Rolodex of talent the longer you work in this business and you try to be able to pull from that whenever you can. Now, and I assume that you were doing that as, at SNL. That yeah. That was something that you learned at SNL. Yes. So how did it change when you transitioned from being part of the team, that the, the leader of the team in the writing room, yeah. to being the host of the show? Well, I would always say that at SNL, Lorne Michaels got 99% of the vote, and then the rest of us combined for the final one. So you couldn't really swing things one way or the other if Lorne didn't want it to go that way. And, I mean, the great gift of this show is that you got to choose everybody you wanted to work with and you got to sign off on everybody you wanted to work with. And so that way you can kind of lay in a DNA right when you start. And I will say it's one of the things I'm proudest about is there's no one here that I'm upset to see. There's no personality that I find gets in the way of us succeeding. And we just tried to lay that in very early. And one of the things we tried to tell to everybody is, hey, you know, behave well the whole time you're here and then we will always speak well of you. And people ask us all the time about the people who worked here and, and are they good people and are they the kind, not just talented, because sometimes that's the first thing people can glean from your work, but are they a good person? Are they someone you want to actually spend time with? Well, and I feel like we, we actually get to see a lot of your writers because yeah. they come on the show. Um, and so it's really evident that you have a particularly diverse writer's room. Yeah. We wanted it to have not just a, you know, diversity... So far as we wanted women and men, and, and we wanted people from different backgrounds. We also wanted diversity of styles in that we wanted people from stand-up. We wanted people who worked at The Onion. We wanted people who were improvisers or sketch performers, people who were just writers and never wanted to be in camera and would take a swing at us if we told them they had to be. Do um, you have a lot of those? Uh, well, you know, fewer every day, got to yeah. be honest. They all start warming up to the idea of being in front of the camera. <laughs> but, you know, the interesting thing was we kind of, when we started the show, and again, because like one of my favorite things about being on Weekend Update was sharing the desk with guests, you know, most famously with, you know, Bill as Stefan. But that was always my favorite thing to do was just pay, play straight man to uh, really talented performers. And when we first started the show, we tried that a lot, whereas our writers played characters. And it was a little jarring for the audience, I think, because they'd last seen me introducing people that were exactly as well known as I was. You know, it was Seth and Fred or Seth and and Cecily or Seth and Kate, whereas this was Seth and someone I'd never seen before. And it was really heavy sledding. And the interesting thing, the arc that took place over the five years was our writers kind of went away for a while. And then the way they came back is they would come on camera and be able to talk from a point of view that I didn't have. So as opposed to being a, a, care, a sort of an actor in a sketch, they became individuals. And that has been a lot more useful to us than the previous. Well, it was a wonderful, hilarious, but also incredibly smart way to point out the things that you don't have. You know, if I can sort of uh, sing the praises of, of what you get from uh, diverse writing staff is, you know, we had an opening in Amber Ruffin, who, you know, is probably the writer who's on camera the most on our show. She immediately walked in our door within an hour of finding out we had an opening and said, you have to hire my friend Jenny Hagel. And, you know, Jenny then came on board and Amber and Jenny were the ones who came up with the bit joke Seth can't tell, which not only is the fun of it that I admit to the audience, these are jokes I can't tell, but I never I personally never would have come up with that as a sketch idea. You know, I don't 
approach comedy is thinking about the things I can't do. I think about the things I can do. But <laughs> it's really nice to have people in the room who say, hey, we found a way to actually call out the other of it. And right. um, and so that was that, you know, again, that was just a gift that they brought to us. And you wouldn't have that if you didn't have that voice or the perspective at your table. Yes. But it can also be tricky to have so many different perspectives and so many different, I would assume, senses of humor at times around yeah. your table. As the leader of a group like that, how do you help people to work together? Well, you know, I will say that, you know, as a host, you, you it is still your taste. You know, even when somebody does something from a perspective that's not mine, we don't put it on the air if I can't see why it's funny. You know, right. I, you know, and, and so for me, and again, you know, because most of the time people like Amber and Jetty are, they're, they still are writing for my voice. Right. And, uh, and I think they understand that as well. Like, uh, and I think that's probably how they develop that other bit, which is, oh, we like writing for you, but also we're coming up with these ideas that we realize would be, bad if you said them, but right. we also think they're good jokes. Um, so, you know, there's not really a clash as far as people saying, this is funny, this is what I think is funny, this is what you're wrong about, what you think is funny. There's a lot of, you know, respect among the writing staff, right. and they all share one big office, which has also seems like a nightmare, but <laughs> has turned out to be, and it was out of necessity, it wasn't like we made the decision to put them all in one place. We just didn't. It's so roomy here, I don't know what you're talking <laughs> exactly. about. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's with the conference room. Every time they walk by it, they probably think, we could put three offices oh, in here. <laughs> but uh, they, you know, they, they all like live on top of each other. And so they're, uh, they've learned to be uh, good coworkers and, and, and a nice uh, support for one another. We are taking a quick break for a message from our sponsors. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Back to my conversation with Seth Myers. Did you think about pursuing, say, an acting career? Yeah, in the beginning. Um, and then I was sort of, uh, I took the feedback of how they uh, those jobs went to realize that that maybe <laughs> wasn't one of my strengths. Uh, even my yeah. father, who's a huge fan of mine, he said to me once after uh, one of the lesser films that I appeared in, he said, you know, some people, some actors, you forget it's them when they're on the screen. But every time I see you, I just think, that's Seth. <laughs> I was like, I don't think that's a compliment. And he said, oh, no, I, I don't think I meant it as a compliment. Um, but I, one of the great, it's really one of the great escapes that I don't feel that urge to act anymore you know once I even at SNL which I loved you know and I considered myself when I started that show a sketch comedian but there was a reason I ended up behind a desk saying right. I'm Seth Myers. you know even the show figured out like I think people like it when you're you and less when you're not five years ago you walked into an institution that existed for a long time before you got here yeah you are just the, the fourth host yes how did you begin to think about preparing to walk into those shoes. The reality is I didn't think about it a lot. I kind of thought, I think at the back of my head, I knew that the way we were going to figure out what this show was going to be was by doing it as opposed to thinking about it. And 
you know, looking back in those three weeks where we sat in this room right here as a writing staff and came up with the things we wanted to try on this show, nothing of the hundred ideas we came up with still exist as pieces in late night. But we only we had to figure that out by the doing of it. And so we had the luxury of, you know, being able to do the show and figure out what it was as opposed to having any grand plans going into it. You realize it's extremely helpful to hear as I record my first episode with you. Yeah. Having never made a podcast. Did you? What do you think you thought about it a lot before today? Do these note cards tell you anything? Well, you know, you wouldn't. I mean, the first show I did, I we did have, you know, I, I knew things to ask the guests. I knew that much. You know, I right. thought I wanted it to be a good show. Right. I just didn't have a roadmap to those aspirations. I didn't know what. You know, in my mind, and I should say the hardest press I ever did in my life was the three months of press before you have a show. Oh. Because you are talking about this thing that is so, um, don't even have a handle on it yet. It's it's an illusion. Right. And so you say things like, we're going to talk to politicians and authors and we're going to, and then none of it, you know, we're going to make fun of the news. And it just didn't feel like interesting press to do. It's so much more fun to talk about a show once it's actually a thing. Right. Well, was there a moment, do you remember a specific moment early on where you felt like you hit flow and you had created something that was going to endure? You know, we did a lot of things uh, in the first year and a half that I'm proud of that were, I feel like, you know, gave you a sense that you were making progress. But... You know, it was their second August of doing the show. It was a year and a half of doing it. And I remember sitting with Mike Shoemaker and saying, hey, we should just start. Let's just try to start the show at the desk as opposed to doing a monologue. And I feel like we'll just be able to start faster and we'll go back to the style of telling jokes that we told on Update. It'll be a revamp of the show that doesn't require new staff or having to bring everybody into a group meeting and tell them what wasn't working. And it was no joke, three jokes into the first time I did that where I realized, oh, this is the show. It's going to be this. (laughs) Did it just feel a certain way? Yeah, it felt. And it's interesting because I don't know if people in other lines of business worry about this the way that people in show business worry about it. When I left SNL, one of my fears was, or I shouldn't say fears, I wanted to show people I could do another thing, that I wasn't just the update guy. Right. And so for a year and a half, I fought the idea of telling jokes at a desk. And then a year and a half in, I realized, why am I not doing the thing I trained for, the thing I got better at? Right. Why am I throwing away all that learned skill? Right. For the purposes of showing people I can do another thing, which I don't even necessarily know I can do. So I a friend of mine said after I sat down, he said, oh, it's so I like it so much more. I feel so much more comfortable watching you behind a desk. And I said, oh, I'm more comfortable, too. And he said, I don't actually care how comfortable you are. I just feel safer. (laughs) So uh, what was the muscle that you strengthened the most or like the newest thing that you figured out how to do? You know, I think I got better at interviewing. I mean, that was the farthest away from anything at SNL. You know, when you interview somebody Weekend Update, it's obviously scripted and you're not surprised by anything they say. And trying to be a good listener and trying to, you know, ask your next question based on the answer you got and, and being able to find segues when it's time to move on to a new topic. I feel like I got better at that. And then the other thing, you know, which was born out of the necessity of the political moment we're living in is you just have to be so much faster. You have to react so much quicker than anything we ever had to do at SNL, which I would have thought 
oh, nothing moves faster than SNL. But if you're basically trying to do a 10-minute political piece every day in this day and age, you can't get that far ahead of it because the news is changing so quickly that if you write something Monday for Wednesday, the reality is it will not have any value. Right. That makes sense. Your show evolved over the course of the last few years to embrace a political stance much more than you did at the beginning. Yeah. So so where did that come from? Did you you shy away from it at the start? I don't know. You know, I think that we, in the start, there was a sense of, oh, does the world need another show that's talking about politics? You know, you had The Daily Show, you had Colbert Report. It wasn't like, I think there was a thirst for it. But the more we did it, and every now and then there would be something that happened in the news that we would write about. We felt good doing it. You know, we felt like um, I, in no way we were doing it better, but it was maybe better than the other stuff we were doing. And so we just kind of committed to the idea of trying to improve upon it. And then it became the thing that we just started getting feedback on. You know, that's a big part of this as well. You know, you and the nicest shift for me happened two years in which is people would come up to me for the first two years of doing the show and say, I loved you on SNL. And then <laughs> finally, two years in, they would say, I love your show. But it took a full two years for people to move on to my present. As right. lovely it is as it is to be complimented on your past, it's a lot nicer to be complimented on your present. It feels a certain way. Yes. And so the crazy thing to me is that this isn't even all of your present, that you actually are doing a number of different things. Yeah. You have your Documentary Now series. You've you've done a ton of different things. Why is that important to you? Documentary Now is so different than anything we're doing here. It is the longest tale. You work a year on it before it comes out as opposed to working a morning on it and doing it that night. Right. Everything here is... Uh, lovingly disposable in that it's a bit like a newspaper. You know, by Wednesday, you're not going to read Tuesday's New York Times. And that's the way our show feels. Whereas Documentary Now, I feel like those episodes will endure for a very long time. Yes. Uh, and will, you know, even when they endure for a very long time, it will still be seen by less people than probably see our show tonight. But those but, seven people are going to love it till they die. And that's the goal. To do something like that is really... Uh, special. And then, you know, I also, I still really like going out and doing stand-up. You know, it's a, again, totally different experience and, you know, a skill I worked a long time to feel good at and I don't want to stop and let it, you know, atrophy. And and so I try to get out and do that too. But you also, you encourage your writers to do that as well, right? I mean, your writers are always working on all these other projects. Yeah. Again, one of the limitations of being a writer on this show is 80% of the words are going to be said by me. So maybe you just want to get out and maybe you want to write a sitcom and and cast it with different voices. Or maybe you want to be the host of something. And, you know, that's why we're no way, shape or form hoping people stay here forever. You know, I, you know, I'm stuck with me, but I can see as a writer, you might want to try other things. The other reason we encourage it is you know, we feel like, hey, if you can stay here and work here, but also we give you this room and, and we will happily help you, you know, pitch it. If you want to go try to sell a show to a network, uh, we'll go in the room with you and, and we will sort of, uh, you know, sing your praises and talk about what a talent you are. And then you you can develop that show while you're still working here. You don't have to leave one job to go try to chase the next one. We, You know, there is the space here to let that happen. And we do feel like that makes the people who work here happier to know that, you know, this is it's not a, a cage. There's it is, but there, the door is open. <laughs> but it seems like that is to bring us full circle. That that is what good management looks like. It's not even specific to Hollywood. That helping people realize bigger dreams 
means that you're going to get more from them during the time they're with you. I really hope that's true, and that is certainly is our philosophy. I can't imagine how you wouldn't resent us if you felt like we were giving you a job, but it wasn't the one you dreamed of, and, and it was also you know stopping you from, from pursuing that. So we've definitely you know, with the people who work here, you know, when they come to us and say, hey, I got this great offer, our our reaction to that is always, oh my God, we're so happy for you. We are taking a quick break for a message from our sponsors. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the LinkedIn Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back to my conversation with Seth Myers. When you think forward over the decades and hopefully decades and decades to come, <laughs> what do you imagine might be future challenges you might be psyched to uh Well, you know, I look, we thought at the last election, I'm I don't think it'll come as a surprise to people, it was not the outcome we expected. And so we have continued to write about politics the way we did during the campaign, which was uh again, d- did not uh see it going on. With that said, you know, when this uh, hopefully not permanent political moment comes to an end, we are very excited of trying to figure out how the show will change because I think it will have to change out of necessity. And that's really exciting to everyone here right. um, because I don't think we're alone and feeling a little bit of exhaustion. Sure. And not just as comedians, as any human being who who engages with the news on a day-to-day basis. I think the other challenge is, you know, it's five years in and this show is as exciting to do as it ever was for me, if not more exciting. And you just want to, I don't know how you would do this job and this schedule if you weren't excited to come into work every day. And so it's just trying to make sure that you still feel that engaged. I mean, the other thing that's fun is, you know, when writers leave, we bring in, uh, well, you know, we tend to bring in people and give them their first job on television. So when someone leaves and they've been a writer for five years on TV, then you get somebody who's brand new and you realize, oh, this is fun to have somebody who's really excited to be in television and who watched this show and now works here. And you try to uh, feed off their youth like vampires. <laughs> uh, so tell me about, you know, tell me about the last person you hired. We hired this girl named Karen Chi. And Karen uh, is fantastic and I believe Karen might be 23 years old, uh, which is shockingly young. But she wrote for the Golden Globes. She wrote on the Golden Globes. And Andy Samberg had reached out to us because I'd hosted the previous year and he was looking for people who could come write. And so three of the writers on our staff, Amber Jenny and Allie Horde, went out to the Globes. And while they were there, they met Karen and they came back and, and each one of them said, oh, you, we have to hire Karen. And it happened very quickly, but it was, again, that great thing of you just sort of have these ambassadors for the show that go out and 
and are sort of half ambassadors, half recruiters, and they come back and, and tell you the next thing you have to do. And they're the kind of people who work here and know who's going to be a fit. And so, you know, we're like three weeks into the Karen Chi era, but so far so good. Seth, it's really fun to finally meet you. This has been wonderful. And I just, I love the show that you do. That was Seth Myers, and I'm really struck by how he thinks about managing people. And stay tuned after the credits for some behind the scenes from the studios. You know, Seth brings together this talented group of writers because they know that if they work for him, he will hook them up. And that makes you so loyal, right? And so you stick around, and maybe even longer than you might have otherwise, because you know it'll pay off for you. And as a manager, if you're lucky enough to hire talented people, you will get the most out of them by giving them everything you've got, by helping them find their next thing. So this is what I asked Caroline, who investigated this week. Hey, Caroline, welcome to our first podcast. Hey, Jesse. So you're the Hello Monday reporter. Explain what that means here. I am the reporter for Hello Monday, which is really just a fancy way of saying I want to talk to you, our listeners. You've just heard that interview with Seth, but the conversation hits on these bigger questions of management, of leadership. And every week I'll be talking to LinkedIn members and our listeners about the stories on the week's topic. This week we heard from a member named Diane. She's a financial journalist who commented with a story about an old boss of hers. Here's my conversation with Diane. I think really what made Bob Lewis special was that he recognized what I needed that I didn't recognize myself. Let's put it in a journalistic term. He'd throw me into the pit to do stories that I didn't think I was necessarily equipped to do. And he also understood that this was not going to be a long-term proposition. So when I said that I wanted to go to Hong Kong, not only did Bob encourage me to go you know, suggest that I could write some stories from there and even pay for Cantonese lessons. I think he knew, which I didn't know, was that I probably wouldn't be coming back. So to have that level of faith in me and to invest in somebody who isn't there for the long term, I thought was incredibly farsighted. And as a result, you know, I've I've kept in touch pretty much over the whole course of my career. And I've always felt grateful to him for the opportunities that I got. And do you feel like you stayed longer at McLean because he was there so you could work with him? No, I didn't. In fact, I, I actually feel very strongly that in in, the, in that chapter of your career, sort of the early part of your career, it is good to move around. And I hadn't necessarily recognized that. I think in some ways Bob did. So I was at McLean for less than, I think, three and a half years in total. But this was the kind of place where a lot of people came and had jobs for life. And the fact that Bob actually encouraged me to go halfway across the planet and just experiment, I ended up at the Wall Street Journal, I think was a testament to him because I think he understood the value of actually working at different places. So if anything, having him as a boss probably made me stay less time at McLean's because he encouraged me to take risks. So Jesse, I feel like what Diane shared is just a bit of what we hope to do with this show. Not everyone has hosted the late night show like Seth, but everyone has had experiences at work that we can all relate to. Exactly. And, you know, that's the point. Like, we will have conversations with very interesting people. But the point of the conversation is to figure out what they have to tell us about the things that we should be doing at work. Which brings me to next week's conversation, because, Caroline, I am talking to Elizabeth Gilbert. You know, 
Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth Gilbert. Oh, I know who she is. I mean, I remember reading her book, Eat, Pray, Love. I was in my late 20s, and I was on this narrow career path at the time, and it just sort of expanded my mind in terms of thinking, like, what was I going to do with my one precious life, as it were? It sounds kind of cliche even saying it, but everybody had that reaction to it, I think. And if you've read her books, you kind of feel like you know her. She talks to you like that. But there are things we don't know about her, and that's what we're going to talk about. If there are things that you, our listeners, want to hear from her, please get in touch with us. You can post on LinkedIn using hashtag HelloMonday or email us at HelloMonday at LinkedIn.com. Heck, Email us about anything you want at hellomonday at linkedin.com. Also, Jesse and I will be posting updates on LinkedIn about upcoming episodes, ideas that we're working on, and we want to hear from you. So follow us on LinkedIn as well. I'm Caroline Fairchild. And I'm Jesse Hempel. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It helps new listeners find the show. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Laura Sim with reporting by Caroline Fairchild. The show was mixed by Joe DiGiorgi. Florencia Eriondo is head of editorial video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Kyle Ranson-Walsh and James Moed are Hello Monday's fairy godfathers. The music you heard in this episode was by Pachyderm. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. We'll see you next week. How do you feel as a first podcast? Do you feel any regret of me being the first guest on your first podcast? Do you feel like I've been engaging enough? Deeply, but I'm getting over it. Mm-hmm. Um, my biggest challenge right now with podcasting is trying not to sound like a sixth grade teacher. When I'm reading the script, I'm reading loud and with enthusiasm. And my wife is like, that sounds like someone I know, but not you. I bet if your wife listened to this, she'd say, no, that was definitely you. Again, I don't know the real you. I only know the podcast. <laughs> but it has seemed very natural to me. My wife, I do a lot of uh, this. I'm not saying this because of, <laughs> I'm not saying so, here, let me finish the sentence and then explain what I meant. I do a lot of charity events. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So now you all understand why I realized as I was getting closer there, it sounded like I was uh, uh, talking about what a wonderful person I am. But the reality is my wife and I go to a lot of events and uh, I am asked uh, to sometimes go up and do comedy at charity events. And obviously in New York, there are so many great ones and uh, we love doing it. And I was going up to the last one and my wife said, don't yell. And I said, what? She goes, you yell at these. Just don't yell. You have a microphone. And it's so funny because my wife is a lawyer. She is not uh, uh, adjacent to show business in any way, shape, or form. And as I walked up, I realized, oh, I do yell. I do. When I get into a ballroom, I forget I have a microphone and I yell as though they all need to hear me. And so I guess at the end of the day, what I'm saying is we should uh, you know, listen to our wives. I definitely agree on that one. And, and I have another question on that topic. So you also have two small babies. Yeah. And you have a crazy schedule. And my wife just had a baby not so long ago. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. I've been sick since that baby was born. How, yeah. how, did you, how did you not get every cold and flu, or at least not let us see it while you were busy being on TV? I've been so sick for. <laughs> the second baby has made me sicker. I basically wake up every morning just hawking up phlegm. It has been, and just on and off for like six months. The... Only thing I will say is if you just have to be not sick for an hour a day, the adrenaline you get from an audience who is excited to see you, that basically serves as a B12 shot that <laughs> gets you through it. The only days that are really hard, and there were a couple in the winter where even 
on Twitter, people said, "Oh, buddy, you got your voice is shot." I I have had lost my voice a couple times. Yeah, and that is those are the only ones that are impossible. But other than that, you know, I've only ever missed I've only missed one show for the birth of my first son. Whoa! And uh, knock on wood. And the second they were both born on Sundays, and the second one I was going to miss Monday as well. But the story was so good. <laughs> Because he was born in the lobby of our apartment building. That that even a- my wife, I said to her, I think I got to go tell the story. And she, correctly knowing she was the hero of the story, said, you're allowed to go. So <laughs> I only missed one day. That's pretty great. Yeah. Uh, and I do want you to know, I think you will keep getting better at this. But ultimately, it will be a little bit downhill from this episode. <laughs> I'll keep that. I mean, I knew that. Come on. I knew that in my heart of hearts. 